Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of So Important, the interview podcast. Loyal listeners to the show know that I love baseball and that it is a big part of the show. On this episode, we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Raymond Doswell, a vice president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Dr. Doswell, who holds a doctorate in education in educational leadership from Kansas State University, joined the museum in 1995 as its first curator. Now, he manages the museum's exhibitions, archives, and educational programs and travels extensively as a public speaker on baseball, African-American history, and related topics. The history of the Negro Leagues in the United States is a long and storied one. With African-Americans shut out of Major League Baseball, the Negro Leagues expanded the opportunity for America's Black community to participate in the national pastime or variation thereof. Teams would travel the country playing competitive games and, in most cases, at extremely high levels. There is a long list of star players from these leagues, many of whom could easily have played in the major leagues had the times permitted. The museum that honors these players and brings their stories to life is the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Having Dr. Doswell with us is a great honor, and Ray, I want to thank you for being here with me, and welcome to the show. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. And let's just get right into it. I think a good place to start may be to tell us a little bit about the Negro Leagues themselves. How did they get started and what was the motivation for doing so? This is a story that is steeped in a period of American history uh, that historians uh, call the Great Migration. Between the end of Civil War and the beginning of the Reconstruction period after the Civil War in the late 1800s, roughly the 1880s, up through the beginnings of World War II, uh, roughly 1939-ish, African-Americans were moving by the millions across the country. The the country's becoming more industrial. People are leaving the uh, plantation and rural and farm life to go into the cities. And then African-Americans in particular are moving out of the South, where most of the slave plantations were, uh, into the Midwest and into the North, uh, Northeast as well. And looking for work in the industrial cities, looking for opportunities, trying to escape racism, which they don't, but in the end still come up against segregation, yet do build communities and cultural enclaves, especially in many of our urban centers. For example, many African-Americans, although they didn't build Harlem, they settled into Harlem, uh, New York, as one enclave. Memphis, that's Bill Street the south side of Chicago. In Kansas City, that's the uh, the corridor, that's the Vine Street corridor, as it's called, uh, 12th Street and Vine, 18th and Vine area. They built their own schools, their own churches, bakeries, cleaners, nightclubs, restaurants, and among those businesses were baseball teams. And baseball was a sport that was growing in popularity in this time period among many different ethnic groups, especially in our urban centers. It's important to know if I go back a little bit further, though, African-Americans, you know, had witnessed and picked up the various versions of ball and stick games as they were growing in the United States during slavery. And especially after the Civil War, they saw soldiers playing the game and they played the game as well, learned the game, excelled at the game. Uh, And the sport itself was becoming less amateur and more professional as we get into the 1880s. And African-Americans wanted uh, to participate on semi-professional and amateur levels as well. 
to the point where they were developing their own teams and asking for admission into the more formal clubs or leagues that were being formed. Now, there were a handful of individual Blacks uh, or African-Americans who did play on what would be white teams or in white clubs, uh, but they were very few. And an all-Black team, for the most part, by most leagues, were denied access. So these Black baseball entrepreneurs say, okay, well, we'll try to do our own thing, create our own teams. Uh, But one of the pitfalls of that was uh, you were basically a traveling roadshow. Uh, you scheduled your events and entertainment along the way as best you could. Uh, maybe you played all competition, be it black or white, depending on what the racial attitudes of those communities were. They may have found it entertaining to have an all-black team come through town, but not serve them in a restaurant or give them a hotel room or anything like that. And if you wanted to play other black teams, uh, for the most part, you needed to be part of a league structure. And what do I mean by that? Well, you agree to play common opponents on a regular schedule and maybe have a governing body that uh, governs rules, player transactions, maybe a little revenue sharing, all these kinds of things. So without that league structure, things get a little wonky for you. You can be out on the road, traveling, hope that you got your game in, uh, that you could pay your players and that you don't disband in the road. Plus, You're trying to do all that against the layer and backdrop of segregated hotels, segregated travel, segregated accommodations. Uh, There was always this push to try to get uh, league structures formed. And there were several attempts in the late 1800s, but none were as successful as to the point when we get to 1920, uh, when a number of mostly Midwestern teams, black teams, came together to form what would become the Negro National League. Uh, And that began that meeting to to form that league was held here in Kansas City in February of 1920, 101 years ago, uh, at a building not far from our location here, the Paseo YMCA building. Uh, It was a YMCA that was built by the Black community, has its own unique history, but it was a meeting place uh, where these Midwestern team owners representing places like Chicago, Detroit, Indianapolis, Dayton, Ohio, came to hammer out uh, a structure for the Negro National League. And again, I mentioned that there were a handful of African-Americans playing in the 1800s on white teams. But by 1900, those players and others were kind of pushed out. For the most part, there weren't really written rules about uh, not allowing black players to play in in many of these leagues. Uh, But it was basically, in the end, just collusion among the, the managers and team owners, what historians have described as a gentleman's agreement to not sign contracts with with black baseball players, strictly on the notion of race. Uh, and through that effort, uh, led to those business, baseball entrepreneurs to ultimately try to create their own leagues. And that was the beginning of the Negro Leagues. Were there ever attempts to try to at least get players into the major leagues, if not completely integrate the, the major league baseball itself? Well, there were black and Afro Latino players and Latino players who did play what has been described as major league baseball going back to the 1880s. There are a couple of very interesting instances. One in particular that historians have pointed out is a player named uh, William Edward White, uh, who in around, I think, 1872 or 79, uh, in that period, did play for a team uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, which would get a major league designation. And he filled in for an infielder there and played one game. The problem with Mr. White is that he pretended to be white, (laughs) 
He was African. He was of African-American descent, but he was fair-skinned. It was a mixed ancestry, and he looked white. So um, he did not play as his true self, if you will. So depending on who you ask, he is technically the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. But does that really count if he wasn't playing as a black man? Well, we'll leave that to history to debate, but that's the fact that White played uh, on the Providence team. Uh, A few years later, though, you have uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker from Steubenville, Ohio. Now, Mr. Walker had more difficulty hiding his race, uh, but he wasn't trying to. He played on a team in Toledo, Ohio, which was considered Major League at the time. So many historians point to him as the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. Now, there were other African-Americans who played what you might call semi-professional and amateur baseball or mostly semi-professional baseball in and around the country in many places of note a player named Bud Fowler. Some historians have described him as the first black professional player. There's this, there's this distinction in, in baseball and in all sport, but especially baseball back then about amateurism versus professionalism uh, in terms of, of competing. Uh, and so we're getting into this point of professionalism in baseball in particular. The, the Cincinnati Reds become the first professional team Players getting paid to play and representing a city, which opens up to some levels of early free agency. So players aren't necessarily from Cincinnati. They come from all over and they can play because they're getting paid. And Fowler was one of those players who played everywhere. He grew up near Cooperstown, New York, uh, but um, played everywhere across the country, especially in the East and in the Midwest. But uh, Walker is considered to be among the first African-Americans to play Major League Baseball. But at a certain point, leagues like the International League decided that they were not going to sign new black players to different contracts. Uh, And part of that was because of the resistance of their star white players. Uh, Historians point to one player in particular, Adrian Cap Anson, who was probably the biggest star of his day with Chicago White Sox, who at one point refused initially to play in a game against Walker and another player named George Stovey, who was on another opposite team. Uh, He eventually relented, but vowed not to play uh, in any subsequent games after that. And so it was just, again, this push not to sign black players. And I should point out that it seemed there was seemed to be such a stigma for white America back then to not accept black players, but they were much more open to other cultures like Latino cultures or even Asian cultures or Native American cultures coming in and playing. Because it will seem more as a novelty or just more more interesting to them, I guess, or exotic. So you had a handful of those types of players who do a good chance to play to the point of just the kind of gymnastics that sometimes black people had to do just to get opportunities. There's one story of a player named Charlie Grant. Uh, and Charlie uh, was an outstanding player. And uh, he did have a fair complexion. And one of the, the legends about Mr. Grant was that the great manager at the time at Baltimore, John McGraw, coveted him as a player and tried to figure out a scheme to get him to play with the Baltimore Orioles. So the scheme was to pass him off as Native American. He changes his name to Chief Takahoma. He had played in and around places like Chicago. And so when they got a chance to go to Chicago, uh, many people recognized him from that and uh the ruse was discovered. And there were owners who did try at certain points to integrate the leagues or at least bring some players over. Uh, Bill Vec, okay. uh, who a lot of fans know, uh, eventually was owner of the Cleveland Indians and the Chicago White Sox. Oh, and in between there, the St. Louis Browns. And he had he had worked for the Chicago Cubs for a long time. But before that, when he decided to get into ownership, 
One of the stories is he wanted to purchase the Philadelphia Phillies and would stock that team with black players, namely players from the Newark, nearby Newark Eagles, who were in the 40s, one of the better teams in the leagues. And um, once that plan was revealed, uh, his uh, ownership bid was nixed as well. You, you talked about the professionalism of the leagues. This wasn't just like a, you know, a group of guys who were going around trying to find some, you know, you know make some money. This was a really well-structured and organized enterprise. And uh, it seems like it's only really being appreciated now for just how effective uh, it was and how powerful and how, how good these players really were. These were businesses. This was a business structure. It may not have been as tightly organized as Major League Baseball was, but part of that had to do with just uh, the fact that there was systemic racism that prevented them from getting to those upper levels. Obviously, they didn't have the wherewithal to always build their own ballparks. So they're at the mercy of renting ball stadiums from teams that owned the ballpark, which then they were limited to facilities where they could use facilities in the stadium or not. They didn't always have control over concessions. So, you know, the, the level of money generated for them by comparison to the major leagues, there were too many roadblocks to that. So a lot of teams traveled and, uh, you had to have enough resources to travel, which means a bus. Uh, and if you had a bus as opposed to traveling by train, which was segregated, then you could get to more places more quickly uh, and play games, not only with your ultimately your league competition, uh, but also even extra games against teams within communities along the way. A team in Pittsburgh could travel cross state to Philadelphia to play against the league team in Philadelphia. But along the way, they could pick up games against white and black competition and then get to Philadelphia and play their league schedule games and then play in and around Philadelphia, any other takers that they could schedule and then play more games on the way back to Pittsburgh or on to New York or back to Ohio, whatever they could do. And so you have this, a lot of teams on the road uh, playing lots of games uh, as best they could, especially if they didn't own their own stadiums or at the mercy of the scheduling of the team that owned the stadium, uh, which was usually a major league team. So, White baseball is also making money off of this uh, unbalanced system in many respects. So that, that kind of gets gets us to the museum. There's a, a great statement on the website. It's kind of a mission statement that really captures everything you've been talking about, that the museum is dedicated to preserving and celebrating the rich history of African-American baseball and its impact on the social advancement of America. So the museum has been open uh, as an institution since 1990 and uh, opened its first gallery space in 1994. Uh, and then this current space in the um, fall of 1997. Um, so we've been around a little while, all, over 30 years. And along the way, just trying to uh, make the connections between American history and African-American history through the lens of sport. Uh, but it seems like sport at least in the time that I've been working here, has been a fairly interesting entree into these discussions of race, which are difficult discussions to have. The, the Negro Leagues has proven to me to be a, a, an interesting on-ramp to discussing those issues, just understanding that here are some people who try to, as I often say, broker their culture against racism and oppression. And in many respects, too, playing baseball is part of becoming American. And part of becoming American is, is showing your value and and these black men and women showed their value, showed their talent 
And so hopefully people see that. And I think people appreciate that. And hopefully it goes beyond the folklore of some of the stories that they hear, because uh, then there's context uh, for which they had to live. And that context meant sometimes uh, not being able to have full access to everything that they should have had as Americans. But in spite of that, they were successful. They were inspirational. Uh, and they helped pave the way in many respects for the opening of doors uh, to that fuller access. And that's the significance of Jackie Robinson. Uh, but he stands on the shoulders of so many other, not only athletes, but people who helped make it possible for him to have the success that he had. And again, to begin to open the doors for baseball and the rest of society. He really uh, stood on the shoulders of some great players uh, a long history, and it kind of puts the museum, in my mind at least, in a different perspective. I think the context that you're giving it adds a lot of value added to the to the museum. Really makes me want to get out there to Kansas City as soon as possible. We hope that that is the way we're presenting the story. Just anecdotally, from at least what visitors tell us, is that they come in and they do learn more than what they expected. I think a lot of people may have heard of one or two players like a Satchel Page or a Josh Gibson or a Buck O'Neill or a Buck Leonard, and they've heard of them and they've heard the great stories about Cool Papa Bell being the fastest man in baseball so fast that he could turn out a light switch, get in bed, and pull up the covers before the room went dark, <laughs> or the the outstanding fastballer Satchel Page and all his folks folksy sayings and uh, 42-year-old rookie in the major leagues. Which, yeah, which uh, he toiled for almost 20 years in black baseball and in Latin America before even getting that opportunity. Or the great Josh Gibson, who was, some have said, has the only person to hit a baseball out of Yankee Stadium, completely out. Not just over the wall, over the building. (laughs) You know, so you've got lots of legends like that. But in the end, for me, and I don't necessarily want to be wonky about it, but a more fascinating story for me as a historian is that Josh Gibson is uh, the son of, of, of folk who fled Bonavista, Georgia during the migration to go to Pittsburgh, where he's he worked to be an electrician and other things, but discovered baseball at an early age and became a rising star in his late teens, became a meteoric star in black baseball, dies at age 35. And and we can get romantic and say, well, he died of a broken heart because he didn't get to play Major League Baseball. Well, he died because he had a brain tumor and he didn't get treatment for it. You know, maybe if he was a Major League ball player, he could have gotten treatment sooner. So we do have to get past the romanticism of it and get with the real. And because these are real people uh, with real stories and there's some legendary things to it. But um, there's a lot here for people to, to take in. I think people understand the scope and breadth of the challenges of African-Americans during the time period while still learning about the legendary stories associated with many of these these great athletes. How did you personally get involved in the museum? So I'm a history teacher by training. I'm just a little high school social studies teacher. <laughs> it's, my, it's my primary training. But um, to tell it briefly, that's what I went to school for, but learned uh, through internships about what we call public history. And so public history includes museums and archives and preserving old buildings and things like that. And um, after a year of teaching, I got an opportunity to go to graduate school uh, in California to learn about that craft and um, got a chance to intern at the Smithsonian as a young person. 
But the baseball museum was in its infancy in the mid-90s, and I was finishing graduate work. And I wrote to them saying, you know, I'm looking for employment. And uh, they decided to invite me to consider being curator. And um, I've been here since 1995. Is it as cool a job as it sounds like it must be? (laughs) It's rewarding work. I won't say anything is super difficult, but there is a lot of work to be done. Um, So I'm curator the only train museum professional here, but, you know, I'm, I'm librarian, I'm registrar, I'm archivist. I take care of some of the tech in the museum. I write the the, the labels and, and things like that. I research new exhibits and traveling exhibits. Uh, I help researchers from the kid doing a National History Day project to uh, major motion pictures uh, offices looking for photo research, as well as newspapers and universities. I do public speaking both via online and in person. It's very interesting. Of course, every year we we, we kind of deal with some of the same questions, but new audiences are coming along. And uh, we're excited for the renewed interest or growing interest, I should say, in the topic. And so um, it's been a pretty busy a uh, year and a half for us in spite of the pandemic in trying to uh, uh, really educate people about this history. How did you fare during the pandemic? Well, we had to close for a brief period like everyone. The The timing was interesting for us. So I mentioned the founding of the Negro National League was uh, February 1920. So last year was the 100th anniversary of that. And we had slated a number of uh, activities and events to coincide with that. And in February, we were able to kind of kick off that year with a big art exhibit and have the Commissioner of Baseball come and visit us here at the museum. And there was a lot of media surrounding that. And just a few days later is when everything began to shut down. So there was a lot of interest in what we were building towards the anniversary. So that was one thing. and But then there was also a lot of sympathy for the fact that we had to squash a lot of what was happening. So there were a lot of efforts to just continue to bring awareness to the anniversary. And then, of course, a few months, weeks and months later, we had all the social unrest that was happening in the country. And many in sports turned to us to try to help contextualize what was happening. We're definitely not experts on a lot of that. But if nothing else, what there was a greater awareness of trying to understand African-American history. And as I mentioned, sports is an interesting entree to studying that. And so we could we could at least speak to the history of African-Americans and what they had to go through. And as our president, Mr. Kendrick, often says, there's not a greater love of sport than the love that Negro leaguers exhibited in order to play because uh, they didn't have access to the major leagues at the time, and yet they still persevered and built a league of their own, uh, which helped knock down doors for a lot of things in America. So we had... Um, that attention for us to tell that story uh, and, and exhibit that and to continue to promote the, uh, the anniversary. Uh, so there was a great outpouring of uh, memberships and donations to the museum as a result. And then we had some very uh, timely social media campaigns that worked out in our favor. In particular, uh, we had uh, what we call Tip Your Cap, uh, and it allowed uh, a number of celebrities to pay tribute to the anniversary of the Negro Leagues via social media. Uh, Of note were four of former United States presidents, including Mr. Carter, Mr. Clinton, Mr. Bush, and Mr. Obama. Uh, And then it really just kind of went 
crazy after that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and so that was successful and brought in donations. Major League Baseball decided to, to still honor the Negro Leagues with the league-wide celebration of the Negro Leagues. And there were patches uh, on each uniform honoring the anniversary. That was big. And on the, still on the unfortunate side, too, we lost a number of important baseball players, Hall of Famers, some of them Negro Leaguers, some of them not, but friends of the museum like Bob Gibson and Lou Brock and Joe Morgan in particular, and that brought additional attention. And finally, the in December, Major League Baseball announces what they call the elevation of certain Negro Leagues to Major League status. That drew a tremendous amount of interest uh, in December to this day. People are sort of asking about trying to understand what that means and and either how excited they are or how confused they are by it. So uh, the only thing we didn't have last year was we didn't have the attendance because of the the slowdown of the pandemic and the fact that fans were not allowed in the ballparks. So those fans who normally would travel to places like Kansas City, they weren't there, and that was a big loss in our attendance. Now that they are allowed, we can't keep them out. They have been coming in droves to the museum. So uh, it's an important time for the museum, and we're thinking about how we continue to make uh, the exhibit accessible to people, but in some essences, uh, pandemic-proof if we can. It sounds like the future is bright. It sounds like maybe a bucket list kind of place to visit. I hope to get out there, and I really appreciate you spending the time talking to my audience and to me and just putting a historical perspective on it that I probably hadn't really thought that much about. So I think that's a great service, and I just want to say thank you for that. Well, you're welcome, and we encourage you all to visit. We'll be open through the winter, and if you can't come then, come during the baseball season. Uh, We'd love to have you. Thank you very, very much. You're welcome.